Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hey, this is Tim. Happy New Year. We're on vacation this week, but the Crash Course team wanted to re-air an episode we had fun making with a colleague of ours here at Bloomberg. Sejal Kishan is a stellar Bloomberg reporter, and she wrote a really great article about the backlash to ESG, which is an investing practice that takes environmental, social, and governance concerns into account. We worked with her to turn the interview for that story into the episode that you're about to hear. Thanks for listening. Now here's the show. Have you ever looked at the stock market and thought, dear Lord, my portfolio needs some help? Or, thank God it's not that bad today. Well, for one investor in Idaho, that prayer happens every day, though with a little less exasperation. Heavenly Father, as we head into our week full of work, we pray that you would go with us, that you'd be with us, Lord, go before us. That's Robert Netsley, the president and CEO of Inspire Investing. His company does something he calls Biblically Responsible Investing. Biblically Responsible Investing. For the uninitiated, What does it mean to invest for the glory of God? means certainly to do what you can to earn a good return and use the returns, you know, for redemptive purposes. But also means like Proverbs uh, chapter 16 says, better is a little with righteousness than great gains with injustice. If there has to be a trade-off, between making a ton of money or being moral. Like, we should choose righteousness and morality, ethics, and there's very few people that I think would disagree with that. So Robert invests depending on what he thinks the Bible might support or not support. He used to label his offerings as faith-based ESG. In 2019, like when we launched WWJD, it was the first fund that had ESG in the name. What would Jesus do, WWJD? But now, it's just like all of a sudden I'm talking to people who don't even know what a stock or an equity or mutual fund is. And they're like, oh, ESG. So, uh, yeah, exactly. Like, what does it mean? I don't know. But it's evil. Wicked. Bad. Welcome to Crash Course, a podcast about business, political and social disruption and what we can learn from it. I'm Tim O'Brien. Robert Netsley personifies a bigger war going on in the investment world and American politics over a little acronym called ESG. In the last year, there's been a Republican backlash to the trillions of dollars committed to investing practices that take environmental, social, and governance concerns into account. And then there's Robert. He's an evangelical Christian trying to realize his values and stay true to his own beliefs in the investing world. That sometimes intersects with Wall Street's ESG strategy, but it also lays bare some contradictions. My colleague, Sejal Kishan, reports on ESG investing for Bloomberg News, and she flew to Idaho to meet with Robert. She wrote a fascinating piece last fall called, What Would Jesus Buy? Investor Charts Course for $2 Billion Fund. And she's going to share more of that story with us for today's Crash Course, Conservatives versus ESG. It's a tale of two conflicts in a way. Should there be biases in the investing world? be it faith-based or social activism? And 
Should ESG exist at all? Welcome to the show, Sejal. Thanks for having me. So before we dive back into Robert's story, I want listeners to get to know you a little bit more. You've been at Bloomberg about 20 years now. And how long have you been on the ESG beat? Uh, it's just, just over three years, just before the pandemic, we started the beat. And why ESG? Why do you love this little corner of the market? It's complex. It's undefined. It's everywhere, but nowhere. It's just trying to figure out the complexities is uh, what drew me to the beat. And you're good at solving complexities? Uh, I wish. <laughs> uh, I bet you are. I think you are. That's why you're here. Now, how did you find out about Robert Netsley? What attracted you to him as a story? Well, I first heard about him after the shooting in Uvalde, Texas last year, and I was looking at whether ESG funds held gun stocks, and I thought, obviously, no. But then I found his fund, and we found that he held shares in a firearms company called Sturm Rugger. One of the big ones. And a shooting sports company called Vista Outdoor. So I called him. He said that gun violence is deplorable, but guns themselves aren't unethical or immoral by themselves. I remember thinking it was a little weird, but to me, it was new to hear about a conservative version of ESG. I knew I had to learn more. So I hopped on a plane and flew to Boise last year. Okay, well, so why don't you take over the story from there, and then we'll meet back here later in the episode to talk more about ESG and what you've learned. Sounds great. Robert Nestle is a small part of a bigger clash that's going on in America, red versus blue. And the worlds of finance and investing haven't been immune. ESG, which stands for Environmental, Social and Governance Investing, has become a piñata and dragged into the culture wars. On the one hand, proponents of ESG say it's important to take into account things like climate change and workers' rights when making financing and investing decisions especially amid societal changes, regulation, and pressing problems like global warming. But opponents on the political right say ESG has become a way for progressives to impose their views and their goals on financial markets, essentially a threat to the American way of doing business. Robert Nestle is somewhere in the middle of those two. He's a bit of an anomaly. He straddles both sides. In one sense, he is a faith-based investor who excludes things like tobacco and alcohol from his portfolio. But on the other, he invests in gun makers and pushes back on things like LGBTQ issues. We'll get into more of that later. But first, I want you to hear where Robert came from. He grew up in California in the Monterey Bay area. His parents married right out of high school and had Roberts and his younger brother not long after that. His mum stopped using drugs, but his dad didn't. They got divorced when I was about three, raised by my mom. My younger brother's uh, autistic and on food stamps for a little bit and all that kind of thing, going through life and just really seeing the faithfulness of God through all of that. As evangelical Christians, they went to church. The community there gave Robert stability. And he had a sense that God was providing for his family. But he really found God one day when he was seven years old and on time out. I remember this really feeling like, sorry for myself, whatever, whatever, nobody loves me, yada, yada, yada. (laughs) And, you know, writhing in my pity. Um, And just remembering what the pastor said that, you know, 
Jesus loves you, actually, and he will like forgive you of your sin. And as a seven-year-old does, I remember praying and asking Jesus to come into my heart, you know, and I give him a lot to him there. And then so that's when personally I made a decision to really follow Christ in a very childlike way. Robert went to community college, then later got his college degree online. In between that, he met his wife at a tiny church in his hometown. They lived a life of what he called intentional ministry, doing work in the community in the name of God. He worked with high schoolers with disabilities and at a pro-life pregnancy centre. When he and his wife started having kids and needed more money, he got a job at a Volkswagen dealership until it closed during the 2008 financial crisis. On my way home from getting let go, when they told everybody, you know, what was going on, like our head was kind of spinning, we're expecting our second baby, and it's like, I don't know what I'm going to do. So we just kind of pulled over and was praying and really felt the peace of God to say, like, you know what, you've never really liked that job anyway. This is your opportunity to do whatever you want to do, and I'll take care of you. So he thought about what jobs could have family-friendly hours, and he decided to look for a job at a bank. He applied to everything he could, and then he got a gig with Wells Fargo in their investment department. Even though maths was his worst subject in school, he picked it up really quickly, got licensed, and moved into a role advising clients on their investments. He says he was happy as a clam until he decided to lead a Bible study on finances at his church. He wanted to talk about what the Bible teaches people about money, so he starts researching. And then some article came up about biblically responsible investing, like investing, interesting click, and it introduced this concept of, hey, ever thought about what the companies you own, like you're an owner, what they're actually doing to make money, right? And so if you own Netflix or whatever videos, like would you have a video store that sold pornography videos in the back? Like, no, I wouldn't. And yet that's exactly what we do as shareholders. Robert says there are lots of scriptures in the Bible that say it's bad to make money off of things that are immoral. That is detestable to the Lord. So he turned to his own investments, and he quickly found what he considers to be a major red flag. He had been investing in companies that manufacture abortifacients, or drugs that help end a pregnancy. His heart sank. Remember, he was the president of a pro-life pregnancy centre, and his reading of the Bible concluded that abortion is bad. So that investment was a complete no-no for him. I remember sitting at my desk sort of slack job, like just stunned that this was something that I had missed, that the church is obviously missing, and that I couldn't do my job. Like if somebody came to my desk right now and asked me to place a trade, like I couldn't do it with a clean conscience. And I'm like, oh crap, (laughs) because what else was I going to do? And so it was incredibly frightening. So he quit the bank and he said he felt God was calling him to do something else. He dabbled with what he called biblically responsible investing. And then in 2015, he started his own firm called Inspire Investing. Essentially, Inspire invests in companies it deems worthy, engages with those that it hopes to convert, and excludes or divests from ones that it finds immoral. The Apostle Paul, in you know, one of his letters to uh, the churches, talks about how he's like he's compelled to preach the gospel. Like there's there's nothing else that he can do. He's just he's compelled to preach the gospel. And I really felt like that, like I'm compelled, like there's nothing else I can do other than, than this, you know, go share this story with people. And I don't know how it's going to end up, you know, maybe terribly financially, but this is what I have to do. So close my eyes, step out of the moat, and, you know, trusted God. And he's been, he's been faithful. 
The market was exceptionally bad last year because of inflation, the war in the Ukraine and fears of a global recession. So maybe it doesn't mean a lot that his biggest fund slumped about 24% last year. If we look back to a good year, 2019, his fund was up 28%, but it was still slightly below the overall stock market. But remember what Robert said at the beginning of this episode. For him, it's not all about making money. I'm not an investor who's a Christian. Like I'm a Christian who happens to work in the investment industry. Many of the biggest and most profitable companies are excluded from his portfolio, which is almost a guarantee that his investments will underperform. We exclude companies that, you know, support legislation that is antithetical to a biblical viewpoint, like pushes a certain viewpoint, or donates money to an activist organization that's explicitly pushing an unbiblical viewpoint on those areas. So Robert's reading of the Bible says abortion is bad. Well, think of all the companies that announced that they would pay for employees to travel for an abortion after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last summer. They're out of its portfolio. Also excluded, all of the companies that support or finance floats during the Pride Parade. His reading of the Bible isn't supportive of LGBTQ rights either. I'll just note here that while Netsley says that he loves his LGBTQ neighbours, he doesn't want what he describes as their lifestyles promoted in society and by companies. Nor does he want companies to discriminate against people like him in the workplace who hold more traditional views on marriage. So abortion access and LGBTQ rights are only two issues, but they put a lot of companies on the exclude list. Other companies are shunned for reasons such as distributing pornography, selling tobacco and alcohol products, funding stem cell research and promoting in vitro fertilisation. All in all, Robert says Inspire excludes about half of the S&P 500. Companies like Amazon, Walmart, Apple and Google's parent company Alphabet. In an effort to limit the number of companies on the exclude list, Robert will often press executives, encouraging them to avoid what he says is politicization. Here's one example. Costco, who likes Costco? Wholesale? Fans of free samples in the room? He's on the stage at a conservative conference in 2018. Last summer, we were alerted to the fact that they had begun uh, sponsoring certain gay pride parades throughout the country, a handful in different cities. Obviously, this is concerning to us. So I picked up the phone and I just called Investor Relations. He said the CFO called him back and they had several conversations. About six weeks after that initial phone call, I got a, another call from this gentleman uh, telling us that Costco had made the executive decision not to support divisive issues, his word, divisive issues, such as gay pride parades. Costco wouldn't respond to requests for comment, but these sorts of campaigns show that his work is about more than just investing in his faith, he's having an influence. It doesn't always go his way, though. He says he's tried to persuade smuckers against supporting LGBTQ rights and other equality issues. He's also tried to press Dick Sporting Goods against paying for employee travel for abortions. But so far, he's been unsuccessful. Yet Robert says he avoids the shame game. One of the big criticisms of biblically responsible investing generally is that it can be easily perceived or assumed that it's a guilt trip game, right? Like, hey, did you know that you're investing in this thing? Shame on you. And unfortunately, I think historically, there have been those that have taken that approach. 
good intentioned maybe, but you know, wrong approach. And, you know, we've heard a lot of people, especially from the early days, and like before we got involved in like the decades, you know, 90s and 80s and whatnot, that that really was the perception, that it was like a guilt and shame sort of legalistic approach, which is, you know, distasteful mm -hmm. and not really biblical. Mm -hmm. We're supposed to be compelled by love and grace, not guilt and shame. So take that as you will. But one thing that really struck me was that he decided to label his fund as ESG. When I thought about it, it made sense in some ways. I mean, Inspire certainly screens companies by a variety of categories that fall under E, S and G topics, which is environmental, social and governance issues. Inspire will screen for human rights violations, forced labour and other worker issues like minimum wage policies. It'll look at whether companies are cognizant of their environmental impacts, such as water consumption and air pollution. And Inspire will screen for discriminatory or predatory lending, whether companies are aggressively marketing products in low-income communities. All of those are considered ESG factors. But the day I visited him last August, that was all about to change. Right before our interview, he was in a meeting with his board and they decided to remove the ESG label from their funds. I don't know if there was some meeting that they had in conservative radio land or something, right? But like, hey, this year, let's talk about ESG every single time we go on the air. And so the, you know, just we noticed the rhetoric is like increasing. Hmm, I'm watching this. Don't know how this is going to go. But we're committed to like trying to be a light, trying to be a redemptive influence on ESG. And meanwhile, we're getting like lambasted from the left for like saying we're ESG. Robert says he got blowback from liberal corners for claiming the ESG label while investing in stocks that might contradict a more traditional understanding of what ESG means. Meanwhile, his more conservative clients were also getting confused by the label. Conservative talking heads like Glenn Beck and Tucker Carlson had been attacking the ESG on air, describing it as what they call a leftist agenda. So have high-profile politicians such as Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former Vice President Mike Pence. Beck has said ESG poses a danger to the soul of America. DeSantis has gone as far as directing his state to pull billions of dollars from BlackRock, the Wall Street money manager that's been the most vocal about pressing companies on issues like climate change. And more than a dozen states have pushed anti-ESG laws. So if all these guys are calling ESG woke capitalism, what was Inspire doing? Robert says he wishes ESG could be seen as more neutral, but it is what it is. It's a narrative that we are powerless to, to counteract. Right? If we had a, if we had a bigger microphone, then maybe we would try. Okay, but, but the, now the amount, <laughs> yeah, like when every conservative pundit is calling it evil, like we just cannot counteract that narrative. Not that Robert necessarily wants to counteract conservative talking points. He is on the conservative end of the spectrum after all. And he shared the stage at conservative conferences with big names from the Republican Party. He says he won't endorse candidates, but his work naturally leads him to back or speak out against companies based on whether their handling of social issues conforms to his reading of the Bible. We believe that a healthy business respects all viewpoints, right? And they, certainly if they claim to be tolerant and inclusive, then they should actually be so in practice. So do you want them neutral or do you want them to... It depends on what you mean by neutral, right? So you mean well, by neutral by neutral allowing thing. all viewpoints? Just making shoes, just stick to making shoes. Mm -hmm. 
Um, if it's Nike, yes. I would like to be neutral. If it's this Hobby Lobby or Chick-fil-A, I'd like them to keep not being neutral. But, you know, but even those companies, they respect viewpoint diversity. They have all sorts of people working there. So they're not, it's, it's neutrality in, you know, not imposing your beliefs, you know, upon people working there in a way that is, you know, heavy handed or whatever else. Like it's respecting all viewpoints. Wow. Wow. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, Sajel, but this is just so interesting to me. Robert sounds like such a likable man and he has goals of realizing his values as an investor and through his portfolio. But I also think there's some hypocrisy and contradictions going on here that are worth exploring. He's asking companies like Nike, for example, to be neutral and to not put values ahead of their product line, for example, or to not put values ahead of their sponsorships. And yet then he's turning around and saying Chick-fil-A or Hobby Lobby is doing the right thing by restricting certain people from its premises or from its product line. And that just feels to me like a deep contradiction, especially from someone who says they're a, a Christian, if you accept that sort of a basic tenet of Christianity is love and forgiveness. Who is he really forgiving? Who does he really love when he's working through where he's going to invest? And then the criticisms he has of other people for making exactly the same choices he does. Well, that's where it gets all murky. A lot of conservatives feel that corporate America has been co-opted by liberals who are pushing goals like climate change, for instance. These conservatives want businesses to focus on business and to be more neutral and not following liberal goals. Yeah, but neutrality is in the eye of the beholder. Too right. right? Too right. And at least classically with investment, if you're saying you're being neutral, you're trying to look just at the numbers. And now you have these conflicts between people who say we have the numbers, but we also have values. But then you have Robert Netsley who's saying my values are good for me, but your values aren't good for you. Maybe this is a good place to pause on the story. I agree. Let's take a break. And then where are we going when we get back? I want to sit back and talk to some of the experts that I've been speaking to about what's going on in the issue space. And then we'll go back to Roberts and hear some of his thoughts. Great. We'll be right back with all of that. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Okay, we're back with Bloomberg's ESG reporter, Sejal Kishan. Thanks for having me. So we've just heard the story of Robert Netsley, a faith-based investor in Idaho. But he's not the first person, obviously, who's invested this way. So Sejal, why don't you take over the story again and give our listeners some of that history? Faith-based investing is the oldest form of stakeholder capitalism. Sure. I mean, going back to, you know, slave trade in the UK. This is Robert Netsley again. Yeah, you had the, the Quakers and others who just refused to, like, invest in the slave trade and were outspoken about slave trade. So it was people of faith, specifically Christian faith, you know, in that context. And scripturally, like, even thousands of years before that, you've got proverbs and rules surrounding commerce that prohibit immorality, like, including the slave trade, you know, in, in going back to Leviticus and Moses. This is an immoral business. You don't steal people and sell them. I called Nikita Singal to learn more about this. She's the co-head of Sustainable Investment and ESG at Lazard Asset Management in New York. ESG's birthplace was kind of from the SRI movement. SRI, that's socially responsible investing. She pointed to religious groups like the Methodists, as well as Sharia law in the Muslim faith. And many other religions have some form of influence over how the followers of that faith should invest in line with the principles of that religion. When hot-button issues later arose around the Vietnam War and apartheid in South Africa, a lot of consumers started using their purchasing power to boycott companies turning a profit there. All of that time period was about investing in companies that were we believed they were engaging in activities that were not positive for society. And the tool that was used was to just simply exclude investing in those companies because it was signaling a specific value or a virtue. I think ESG is very different from all of that. In Nikita's eyes, as a person who does this kind of investing every day, ESG is... Not virtue signaling. It's not a product. It's a process. It's actually part and parcel and a very essential part of good investing. And what it is about is thinking on behalf of our clients as their fiduciaries, what are these emerging risks and opportunities related to the environment and society that are increasingly becoming market issues? When I told Nikita about Robert's fund, she was unequivocal. I would not consider that ESG. She highlighted for me the difference between ESG and what she calls impact investing. That's where an investor might try to use their investments to affect change or influence a company's policies. There is a healthy and growing subset of our clients who are interested in that, and we need to make sure that we can do it while keeping in mind their risk-return objectives. But it's not the place of a global asset manager like us to be able to have an opinion on that. To learn more about what makes ESG ESG, I called an expert who I've spoken to while on the beat. Vitold Henish, and I'm Vice Dean and Faculty Director of the ESG Initiative at the Wharton School, and I'm also the Deloitte & Touche Professor of Management. Vitz has a similar take to Nikita when it comes to what factors go into an ESG investment plan. 
ESG is about doing hard financial analysis. And it's not at all driven by ideology. It's driven by economics. He'll study data to try to understand how companies are analysing environmental, social and governance factors. Then he'll look into how those factors might affect a company's bottom line. Here's an example. Palm oil is a common ingredient found in cosmetic products like lipsticks. But it's also leading to a lot of deforestation around the world. That's just one of many examples where an agricultural company, by changing its mix of supplies, by changing where and how it's sourcing, can have an impact on deforestation and an impact on clear-cutting and other environmentally damaging practices. Companies are going to be increasingly pressured to undertake those actions. Some companies are ahead in that transition. Some companies are behind. That should be reflected in their valuation. Otherwise, government policy or consumer changes in preferences will lead them to be forced to make these changes later on when they're more expensive to make. It's not a short-term game. He's really trying to map out how a company's decisions today will affect its profits in the future. There may be periods of time, like 2022, where you outperform the market, but you will underperform over the medium to long term. A number of industry groups report that trillions of dollars are already weighing ESG issues to some degree. That's a massive pool of capital. And Vitz says it's only going to get bigger. But the sudden political polarisation of ESG worries him. Sure, ESG models need work. But he doesn't think that's a reason to give up on the strategy or ignore how these factors affect the market. What I'd point to is the unfair standard they're holding the ESG movement to. They say we haven't built the data set yet that can predict future stock market returns, that we haven't built the financial model that can predict which stock will outperform the others over the next 10 years. Show me anyone in the financial service space who has a data set that can predict which stocks are going to outperform the others over the next 10 years. Anyone who had such a data set would be a billionaire. There's a struggle to always, in each market cycle, in each month, try to figure out which stocks are going to outperform and which aren't. There's so much confusion about what ESG is. It means different things to different people. The data is incomplete, it's difficult to compare, and overall the field is still a work in progress. And even experts acknowledge that ESG analysis is still in its infancy. Nikita says people just have to appreciate where the industry is. That's the wild, wild west that we're still in. Nikita also says she doesn't see bias at work in ESG analysis, regardless of how the models are built. There is no such thing as a good ESG company or a bad ESG company, because you're throwing in three very different variables and you're somehow assuming that that is going to make some sense. Our job as an investor is not to say whether that's good or bad for society. It's about saying how does that impact the financial markets. Robert agrees with Nikita and Vitz that he or she shouldn't be prescriptive, but he thinks that's actually what's happening. The Pollyanna and me probably wishes that there could be a two-party ESG system. And how would that work? Well, take the E, for example. There are those who just think mining is bad and oil production is literally evil and is killing Mother Earth and they should stop all drilling, period, no matter what the cost. The Bible says that we're here, God has put us in this earth to like exercise his dominion over this world. 
we have a a right to extract things from the earth, right? We have a right to use the resources to benefit mankind. Robert's biblical view of mining lines up with a more conservative way of thinking. So the conservative ESG system might grade mining companies highly and invest in more of them, whereas a liberal ESG system might grade them poorly and not invest. One issue, two parties, and two very different approaches. Okay, hang on a sec. I'm going to butt in here again. To clarify, Nikita and Vit are saying that ESG is not political and it's not partisan. They say they're just looking at data that shows how a company will perform in the future depending on how they handle environmental, social, and governance factors. But some conservatives think that issues like climate change, for instance, are inherently political, even if the vast majority of scientists agree that climate change is real. Yeah, that's a pretty good summary, Tim. And actually, there may be even more approaches to ESG than what I've laid out. I spoke to another faith-based investor, Mark Regier, who works in Wisconsin, and he has a different reading of the Bible than Robert does. I make it a rule not to tell anybody what Jesus would do, because I don't know. That's what makes the difference between somebody who's the son of God and somebody who's definitely not. <laughs> like I said, there's no clear definition of ESG. There's lots of different takes on it. It depends on who you speak with. What a minefield. I, I want to talk more about this, but we have to take an ad break first. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Okay, we're back with Sejal Kishan, the ESG wizard at Bloomberg News. I found this whole story so fascinating, Sejal. And a lot's gone on since you interviewed Robert the last time. Tell me about some of the most significant things that have happened within the ESG movement during that period. Gosh, so much has happened. We've had Ron DeSantis pile on and attack ESG. We've had attorney generals across different states launch investigations into ESG. We've had billions of dollars pulled out of BlackRock, Wall Street's biggest champion of ESG, and plenty of anti-ESG bills being pushed through states. You know, it's very interesting to me when these things happen in the U.S., where 
a momentum comes behind a movement, whatever the movement might be. We saw this happening with another acronym, CRT, or critical race theory, that invaded the discussion of education and what's appropriate for the classroom and what isn't. It's rare that you get that same phenomenon on Wall Street and that it becomes so clearly politicized so quickly. And what do you think gave it this kind of energy? Like, why now? And why has it gotten such traction? Why now? I mean, the ESG movement, if you can call it a movement, has overtaken in some ways asset managers and banks. Everybody's been pushing to look at things like climate change, C-suite diversity, inequalities. The composition of boards. Exactly, exactly. And so that's why we've had this like big pushback, because Wall Street has gone big on this in the last three years. And is that pure lunacy? Has Wall Street gone off its rocker that it's now actually trying to embrace things like climate change or corporate diversity or boardroom diversity? I mean, clearly, its critics think it has, and they're painting it as dangerous. But just try to step back for our listeners a little bit as someone who watches Wall Street as a sophisticated observer, as a very numerate, sophisticated observer. Do you think this is a threat to the foundations of American finance and the roots of Wall Street? It's funny that you say that because progressives who are trying to push and act on things like climate change and inequalities in society, they don't feel that capital markets, corporations are doing enough. In fact, they think it's something called greenwashing, where a company is saying they're doing good things, but really they're not. So it's being pushed and pulled from both sides at the moment. And that critique from the left is you actually are not putting your money where your mouth is. Exactly. And now you have Wall Street stepping up, or at least attempting to, to put its money where its mouth is. The left says it's not enough money, and the right saying, watch your mouth. (laughs) (laughs) And caught in the middle are essentially money managers trying to figure out both profitable ways to invest and socially responsible ways to invest, and hence a firestorm. Absolutely. By the end of the day, Wall Street is about making money. They're doing this to generate fees, to generate revenue. But the anti-ESG backlash has actually now sent a chill down Wall Street's spine. We've seen a lot of banks, a lot of investors who two years ago would wax lyrical about climate change and C-suite diversity. Now they've gone on the down low. And is that because they see reputational risk baked into that, that at the end of the day, they're saying to themselves, it might be socially responsible. We even might make money off of this. But this sort of firestorm of criticism we're getting doesn't make it worth it because we might lose business in the long run. Absolutely. I mean, Larry Fink, the chief of BlackRock, he's really been attacked in many ways by the Republicans. And deeply personally attacked. Absolutely. They've really called him on billboards. Some of its max of anti-Semitism. And so he's had to then tone down his his rhetoric on climate change. And he, last year, he went down to Texas to even meet oil executives to explain to them the energy transition and the need to like shift to cleaner fuels. But the attacks on him and the company have been pretty relentless. And that's why a lot of other companies have kind of ducked for cover. And they're really toning down what they're saying about climate change in particular. And on top of that, we've had attorney generals launch investigations looking at the legalese in many of the efforts that Wall Street are doing when it comes to the energy transition. So, yeah, everybody's really looking at their marketing documents, their pitch books, making sure that they have all their ducks lined up. I guess so, as we both know, 
no one really has all their ducks lined up, no matter what they're doing, whether they're an investor, a corporate manager, a parent, or a teacher. I think one of the things I wonder about in all this is if there is a consensus, a scientific consensus, that climate change might be a problem. I think there's definitely a social consensus that people should not be discriminated against for leadership positions in politics or in corporate America simply because they're a woman or because they're a person of color or have a different ethnic background. If we're forestalling putting money behind these kinds of efforts based on bad information, and it runs against both scientific information and broadly held social values, we're getting into a pretty problematic place, aren't we, in terms of being able to take the necessary action we need to solve problems? No, absolutely. But to people on the right, a lot of the diversity initiatives smacks of affirmative action, of quotas, and historically they've hated all of that. Yeah, I wonder how many of those people on the right come from lots of different countries historically and have lots of different backgrounds, and now they kind of want just one thing. But that's probably for a different podcast. I want to come back to money and ESG here. I also think it's useful to frame exactly how vast the ESG realm is, because most money invested in Wall Street is still invested the old-fashioned way. People try to find either growth opportunities or undervalued companies and create a calculus that will result in a profitable payoff somewhere down the road. How big actually is the ESG universe right now in terms of what percentage of assets on Wall Street flow towards it? Well, it's certainly not a majority of the assets. It's probably less than 10, if not 5% of the assets. But ESG investors, they have said like trillions is involved in ESG. But what's happening now, because of concerns of greenwashing, when people exaggerate their environmental claims, we're seeing a sort of a shrinkage going on both in Europe and the US. So the numbers are in flux at the moment. So... From where you sit, do you think this means that the ESG movement is going to run out of steam? Does it die? Does it get repackaged with different initials and sort of sneak past its critics? How does this play out? There are even people within ESG who want to get rid of the acronym altogether because of all the bad press in the past year. They're thinking of more mundane labels like sustainable investing or de-risking or material risk factors, which don't re- they don't really excite people. But that's really what ESG is. Maybe they could call it Save the Planet so your grandchildren can still live on it. But that's, <laughs> that's too long for an investment acronym, isn't it? But despite the malaise, we're not really seeing companies or banks, even though they're being less vocal about it, they're still pushing on behind the scenes on many of these initiatives. Something called green hushing, where you don't talk about your green activities But you do it anyway. But you do it anyway, Uh yeah. This backlash isn't going to go away. There's going to be ebbs and flows, but we've got the elections next year. We've got some of the candidates riding on an anti-woke ticket. Ron DeSantis. And another one, Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So, yeah, it's going to continue to be bashed. Okay, Sejal, I don't let anybody escape this show without sharing with our listeners what they've learned, that little aha that they've discovered by examining the subject we're talking about. So what have you learned about ESG and the anti-ESG movement that you didn't know before you began talking to Robert Netsley and, and others? I guess maybe this is naive of me, but in Europe, in other parts of the world, there isn't this backlash. It's only in America where this backlash is. 
So I've been surprised by the pushback by the rights on an investment strategy that people on the left are saying is not really doing much. What I've learned, things aren't so black and white. They never are. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. You can find Sejal Kishan's reporting on Bloomberg.com. And if you want to become a subscriber, the Bloomberg Terminal. Here at Crash Course, we believe that collisions can be messy, impressive, challenging, surprising, and always instructive. In today's Crash Course, I learned that there are many ways to skin the cat when you're talking about what is and isn't a value-based investment strategy. What did you learn? We'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at the Bloomberg Opinion handle, at Opinion, or me, at Tim O'Brien, using the hashtag Bloomberg Crash Course. You can also subscribe to our show wherever you're listening right now and leave us a review. It helps more people find the show. This episode was produced by the indispensable Anna Mazarakis, Moses Andam, and me. Our supervising producer is Magnus Henriksen, and we had editing help from Sage Bauman, Katie Boyce, Jeff Grocott, Mike Nietzsche, and Christine Vanden Bylart. Blake Maples does our sound engineering, and our original theme song was composed by Luis Guerra. I'm Tim O'Brien. We'll be back next week with another Crash Course. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.